We have a body that loves to praise. That's one of the transformations that takes place in our heart when we come to Christ is that we have a desire to worship Him and praise Him. I think singing to Him is probably one of the easiest commands to obey. There's a lot of things that are hard to obey when it comes to walking in the ways of God. But for most of us, singing the praises of the Lord, good music, that's an easy way to obey Him. And He takes great pleasure and delight in that. Well, good morning. I uh, have a little bit of a cold this morning, so forgive me if I sound that way and clear my throat and so forth. I'm going to work through it. Um, And you'll be happy to know that no matter how sick I get, I will always be up here preaching a sermon because Corky will see to it. Uh, He'll do everything that he can to make sure that I can get up here, no matter what I look like or what I sound like. Uh, that way he doesn't have to preach. So. But we are in the great book of Nehemiah and we are in chapter 10. We're going to look at part two of what it means in a sense to walk in covenant with God. Now, the people of Israel, the people of God had were sick and tired of feeling the death grip of their sin. There are consequences to sin and they're realizing that. They don't want those negative consequences in their lives anymore. They want to experience the, the blessings of God that they read about in God's word. And so they have come together corporately. They've gathered in the presence of God. They've practically begged the scribes and the Pharisees, read us God's word. We want to hear what God has to say. And as the word is being read, they are realizing there are areas of their lives that need to change. And so we have been looking at this book and we have seen them uh, hunger for God's word. We've seen them repent and they wanted to make changes because if we don't make actually get to the point where we don't just feel bad about our sin, but change, then we haven't really grown. And so they want to grow and they want to change. And now we're in chapter in chapter nine. We saw that repentance. And now we're in chapter 10. That change takes the form of a covenant. They've gotten to the place where they're so serious about moving on with God that they are willing to sign their names on a paper and seal it to make it an official document so that all will know. I don't know if they realize that we would be reading about this decision that they made one day in their lives. But we are reading about this decision to get back into the ways of God and make a covenant. And we already looked at the first part of chapter 10 where we read the names and Considered those signatures. We also considered last week, we looked at covenant, we considered the question, is it really such a good idea? Considering their past for the people of God to be determined to enter into a covenant, to make a commitment with him. Because all of chapter nine basically is a prayer of of repentance because of their failures. They are not a covenant keeping kind of people. So is this wise or will they just fail again? They change. People change their minds. Now, God doesn't. God's reliable. God doesn't change. Humans, not so much, but God doesn't change. Numbers 23, 19. uh, Is God a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind? Does he promise and not act? Does he speak and not fulfill? The idea is that God doesn't change. There's nothing 
that he needs to change because he is absolutely perfect. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you are in a covenant with God, and you are, if you are under the grace of God, if you are a Christian, then you have the, the assurance that when God makes a, pre- a promise, everything that he says is holy word, he's not going to change his mind. Which means when we get up to heaven, it's going to be like he has described it. It's not just going to be another version of a cursed world. But man, not so much. Uh, we are not as reliable. Um, we have, I guess you'd call it a duplicitous nature. That is that we're always trying to figure out who we are on any given day. Am I a good person or a bad person? Because I have good thoughts and I want to do good things. But then I also have these evil thoughts I got to wrestle with and evil motivations. Who am I and what am I all about? So we struggle with these kind of things. And sometimes it makes us or causes us to change our mind uh, due to our fallen nature. I'm sure that you have experienced one day or one week. You are absolutely sure you make a decision. You have a passion about it. You have a conviction about it. This is absolutely the right job for me. This is absolutely the right spouse for me. There's no question in my heart or mind. Or this is the right dress or outfit for me to wear to this event. No question about it. Perfectly sure. And then a few days later, a few weeks later, a few months later, all that passion, conviction is gone. We've changed our minds. It's human nature. It's not that it can't be done. We can make commitments. We should make commitments. It's just that we have to work harder at it. Part of walking in covenant with God is being determined and to trust the Lord to keep our commitments. So even the fact that we are finicky and we do change our mind, I think we settled last week on the idea that uh, it's still a necessary and a good thing to make a commitment And do our very best to stick to it because we are created in the image of God. We're supposed to be like God. And that's what God does, right? He's true to his word. And we want to be like God by being able to make commitments to do the right thing. And by God's grace, remain true to our word. And, of course, we were reminded last week when we think about the covenant that we have entered into with God. It is a covenant of grace. And so even within all the... Strict stipulations and regulations found in the law of Moses. There are also within that law sacrifices and laws about being forgiven, laws about receiving the grace. So there's atonement and we take our failures. We take the times we've changed. We haven't made it to the end. We take those to the cross and we find the grace of God and we find the strength. So our goal As believers, as we think about this idea of being in covenant with God, this idea of being under the authority of and the supremacy of Scripture, our goal should always be to make commitments and stick to them in regards to walking in the ways of God. And if we fail, we repent. We ask forgiveness. We repent. And then we do it again by God's grace. So that's where this weary remnant of believers are. They're turning their hearts back to God. They're gathered up. They're huddled together in the city of Jerusalem behind the walls that they built themselves. And they have made a list and they have signed the leaders, have signed their names to it, representing all of the people. And after that list, 
In verses 28 to 39, we read about the things that they are obligating themselves to do. Even at the expense of entering into this covenant oath under the curses and the blessings of God. They're so serious that they are saying we're willing to be disciplined. If we go astray, we want you, God, to keep us in this good place or that we can't rely on ourselves. We implore you, Father, discipline us, change us if that's what it takes to get back in to your good graces. So we are in verses 28 through 39. Let's read these these decisions that the people of God has made. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister And the gatekeepers and the singers. And I love the final comment. We will not neglect the house of our God. There's our covenant obligations. There's a lot going on there. A lot of um, pledges. A lot of changes taking place. I just kind of categorized them into three broad 
areas. And we looked at the first one last week, and that is that they're basically coming together and saying, we are committing to read your word and then do what it says. Walk in obedience of it. And if we slip, we give you permission. We implore you by your powers, bring us back. So they realize that in order to do this thing or live what we're calling covenant life, covenant people have to read God's word, understand God, know God, and then obey it in order to receive the blessings of the covenant. It's it's a cause and effect. There are stipulations and they're realizing that. So they're ready to make the changes and submit themselves to the highest authority in the land, God's holy word. There's something else here that they're obligated to do. And I'm going to kind of categorize it under this idea of walking according to family leadership. And in this area, it particular talk, particularly talks about marriage. We hear a lot about marriages these days, don't we? That's, some, that's always a topic that's going to be in vogue. Marriage, because it's something that is meant for society. Verse 30 says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. That's right out of the book of Moses, right out of the law of Moses. God told his people, before you go into the land, I'm going to give you this land. It's ready for you. It's a promised land. It's a good place. You're going to love it, especially compared to Egyptian slavery. But when you get there, you are absolutely not to intermarry. Do not give your daughters away to the people of the land. And don't take their daughters into your home for your sons. It's the cultural equivalent of saying we will not let our sons and daughters marry non-Christians. So you look back and it's not a matter of race in the law of Moses. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. That's what God is protecting and also guarding against. That's the big deal here about intermarriage. Belief. Why is it such a big deal? Well, first of all, what's the very first commandment? The very first commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God alone. Love Him only and have no other gods. The problems with the, the people of the lands was that they was that they had a lot of other gods. They had their own personal God, and it was in conflict to the God of Israel. And so they're not to be intermingled. It's a threat to the very first commandment. That's one of the stipulations of the covenant. And one of the best ways to ruin or potentially compromise this very first command is to become romantically or otherwise involved with people of other faiths. So it's a preservative. Now, there are tremendous freedoms, really, in Scripture, if you think about it. There's tremendous freedoms in who God's people can choose to marry. There's nothing that I'm aware of. It talks about shape and size and even color or, or personality to a large extent. We, we can marry somebody with green hair, no teeth, whatever. There's, that's not in the Scripture. No degrees. But the the one thing that God points out in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we'll read it in the New Testament, and I've spoken about this before, 
Apparently God wants to hear it, wants us to hear it again. But the stipulation has to do with belief. It has to do with what the person that you may want to be romantically involved with actually believes, what God they serve. Very, very important. It's, it's the primary stipulation for holy matrimony. Of course, that's not what the world would tell us. If you look at the magazines when you're standing in line at the grocery store, it's all about looks, popularity, and so forth. That's what apparently makes a great relationship. If, if the person's good-looking enough, you've got it made in life. You've got everything you need. It doesn't always work that way. So faith is very important. But God also knows that when it comes to worshiping things, I mean, that's what our whole value system is based on. What we desire, what we want, what we worship. That's how we're going to live. That's that's the decisions we're going to make. It's based on what we think works. It's based on what we value, what we're pledging allegiance to. So what we worship really determines who we are. And what we become. God knows that. And then you think about the way he designed marriage. You know, the way he specifically designed marriage was that it is to reflect unity. Specifically. It's a lot of things in there. It's love and so forth. But it is to be a reflection of almost supernatural oneness. And he says something incredible when he says, and the two shall become one. And that's a covenant. And a covenant, remember, it's a pledge. It's, it's walking in unity. It's walking in agreement. And by God's design, he wants these two individuals created in his image to come together and be one team and to function in agreement for his glory. It's a beautiful, harmonious thing. Holy matrimony. And, of course, the more we can agree on, the better off we are. I think if you've been married... For any length of time, you'll realize that it's kind of hard on a marriage when you're going to argue and dispute about everything. Who left the toilet seat up or down? What? We've got to come up with a household rule here so I don't lose my cool. There's different things that we have to struggle through. So the, the more we are in agreement, the better off we are. Uh, but we don't have to agree on everything. Some things aren't that important. We might agree to disagree. If that's the decision you want to make, that's fine. It's not important to me. You have perfect freedom. But it's all about agreement. It's about walking in unity. And the things that drive us apart are the things that we don't agree on. They can break a a marriage. They can ruin a marriage. And it's usually based on our beliefs. What's really important to us? Well, one thing that's important to a Christian marriage should be unity because it's important to God. I don't know that you hear a whole lot about this in the church anymore, but it's right here in God's holy word. I believe that it would be wise for single people to make a covenant with God to not marry outside the faith before the emotions kick in. Because when the emotions and the romantic notions kick in, it's hard to think clear. Your head gets fuzzy. Been there, done that. And, and kind of like the commitments that you made way back here when you're absolutely sure, now you're second-guessing yourself. It's a good idea, I think, for single people, if you're still single, and God has marriage for you, to, to covenant with God that before I get foggy-headed, before I get Twitter-pated, I'm making this commitment to you because I've read your word and I know what you say and I want to walk in this covenant life and I know... 
what you have for me. And to make that commitment also means to not start taking the steps that would lead to something that would be marriage outside of the faith. Like there's so many things that we can do these days, like social networking and and flirting and, you know, playing games and pushing boundaries so that all next thing you know, you're caught. So we want to settle on these kind of things and make that kind of commitment to God. Now, when you say this kind of thing, especially as a pastor or as a Christian, as a parent or as a grandparent that wants the best for your kids, you know, one of the arguments about marrying outside the faith, believe it or not, in this day and age is this. But she's hot or he's hot. That's what we hear a lot of times. And that's what the world feeds us. If, if you just can be in a relationship with somebody who's hot, you got it made. Well, hell is hot. <laughs> as well. And uh, we might get a little bit of it if we enter into the wrong kind of relationship with the wrong person. You know, here's another one that I have heard myself. uh, But, yeah, I'm sure you have, too. You see somebody, they're interested in somebody who you're just not so sure about if they're really... Christian, and so maybe that person goes and asks them, and they come back and they say, yeah, they believe in God. I ask them, they believe in God. They're in the faith. And I would say it's not quite that easy. It's not quite that simple. There needs to be a little more than just, oh, sure, I, sure, I believe in God. Yeah. I mean, if you were to ask me at any age of my life, do you believe in God? So absolutely, I believe in God. I was raised in a, in a home, a Christian home, and I believed in God. I didn't know not to believe in God, but I was just as lost as lost as could be, living in complete darkness. I did not have the Spirit of God in me until I was 19 years old, and it made a huge difference. So just saying, yes, I believe in God doesn't always go far enough. We, we don't want to be so shallow as to say that's the only litmus test, especially when we're talking about holy matrimony again. I mean, Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. We don't want to be married to one of them, I'm pretty sure. But we have to be careful about these kind of things. And I appreciate the Apostle Paul clarifying this in the New Testament because you might think, well, maybe this is one of those things that has been fulfilled and now we can marry anybody we want. But we read right in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the Apostle Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. He's he's contrasting things and But just about every scholar I've ever read attributes this passage to talking about covenant marriage relationships. How do we relate to nonbelievers? And he uses some choice words here. That's really covenant language. He says partnership. A partnership is a relationship involving shared purposes or activity. So you're sharing life together. You're you're doing this particular thing together. And he asks a very legitimate question question if this person is driven to do the right thing and this 
person is driven to do the wrong thing, what kind of partnership are you, can you expect to have? If this person rightly loves God and this person wrongly doesn't like God, rejects God, what kind of partnership and agreement can, and activity can you expect in that kind of relationship? There's opposition, often pulling each other in opposite direction. I think in essence, if, if we wanted to simplify this, it's the idea that it's not just about your love for one another. It's kind of like God saying, if they don't love me, don't love them. Don't, don't enter into this kind of decision, this, this, uh, this marriage. Because love of God, faith in God is a part of holy matrimony. They don't have to just love you with all their heart. The idea is that they should love Christ with all their hearts. Now, sometimes people have that are unbelievers, they have pretty good marriages. And a lot of times believers think, how is that possible? They really love each other. They get along. Well, they're walking in agreement one way or another. They may both be agreeing to not believe in God. They both agree that we're just going to live our lives this way. Agreement is a principle, a universal principle that works. If we can agree on things, we can get Along well, but also most of the relationships outside of the faith that where there's true love to be found in commitment, they're just implementing biblical principles in the relationship is what they're doing. Because God's word and God's principles work for believers and not and non-believers, the, the universal ones. It's just like principles of money management. You can be a good manager of money and manage your money according to the a wisdom of Proverbs, and reap the benefits from it. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. We can be wise. So Paul uses this word partnership. Then he uses this word fellowship, which is, of course, the word koinonia. And that has the idea of working in close association, fellowshipping one to another. It's this close mutual involvement. And if you're, if you're not... In agreement, you can't be in fellowship, in that kind of fellowship. John says in 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may, too, have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John's basically saying, you can't fellowship with us because you're not in Christ. You can't be a part of us. You can't walk with us. So how about we introduce Christ to you so that then you can be in Christ and you can fellowship with us? See, without Christ, there's no true fellowship. We can't walk in agreement. So a godly marriage, it's a partnership. It is a fellowship. And you have to love each other, yeah, but you have to both love Jesus. And then you walk in agreement that way. Then you find yourself praying together and studying God's word together and wanting to walk in obedience to that word. Your whole home. Your whole lives take on the the aroma of truth and you both want to partner in that and walk it out because you have the same desire in your heart. And that desire is to use your life to glorify God. And you can use that in your marriage. Your marriages can greatly glorify God and are intended to be a testimony, a light to the world of love and commitment and oneness, a reflection of the Holy Trinity, partnership, fellowship. Decisions, mutual decisions to honor the Lord from the core of a love of God. 
you might be thinking, yeah, but your point says family leadership. It's got to do with family leadership, and all you've talked about is individual marriage. But notice what's happening in here. Who's making the commitment, the obligation? It's the parents. It's the parents that are making this obligation on behalf of their children. The parents are saying, we're not going to give and we're not going to take as far as our sons and daughters in marriage to people of the lands who are in other faiths. So there's this this duty of parents, there's a duty of Christian parents to, to be involved in these kind of decisions. They're saying, we're not going to do this. Now, it's a traditional, in our day and time, and I witnessed it yesterday, in a beautiful ceremony of holy matrimony. Traditionally, in a wedding, you go and the bride, the father bride walks his daughter down the aisle. And the pastor or the minister is there. And pretty shortly, that minister will say, uh, who gives this woman to be wed? And the father says, her mother and I. And then hands the bride over to the groom. And so even in our marriages, our marriage ceremonies today, there is this parental consent. There is a giving away. The parents are involved, ideally, biblically, parents are to be involved in that ceremony, in that the final giving, but that's not where it starts. See, in order to keep this covenant that they're making on this day, what are they going to have to do as parents? I don't think that they're just going to let life take its course and juniors falling for one of the Canaanite whatevers. And they're, they come and say, Dad, I'm getting married, kill the fatted calf. And they say, oh, sorry, can't do that. There needs, there needs to be proactive. And the idea is that the parents all along are training their children in the ways of God. They're training their children what marriage is all about. Teaching them what a covenant is. God's design. Because it's not what the pagan nations are saying it is. That's not the way it works. Marriage today is not, what the, unbel- is not the picture that the unbelievers are painting. Where it's just about love. And if you have true love for something, you should have the right to marry it. Whether it's the same sex, whether it's the same species, it doesn't even matter this day and age. So it's not what they're saying out there. It's what God has said to us in this special revelation. So parents have been involved all along in teaching and in, in revealing Darkness and shedding light, exposing lies that a lot of young people might be tempted to believe because based on the things that are out there. And they're looking for prospective spouses, and we want to be involved in that. So when they get old enough, you want to, you want to have an open door of communication. They might say, well, what do you think about this person? And um, you might say, a wise thing would be to ask them, what do you think about that person? Don't do what I used to do as a parent. I already knew the right answer, so I would just shut them up and tell them the right answer what they need to do. 
Now that was dumb. <laughs> That's not what Proverbs teaches us to do in shepherding a child's heart. You see, first of all, what is in their heart and what are they thinking? Then you can train it and shepherd it before you shut it down. What do you think about this person? Then you enter into a dialogue. We've had these conversations in our, in our home. Well, what do you think about this person? Well, it's kind of hard to tell with all the body piercings and tattoos and the dreadlocks. So I might have to get to know them a little better. Now, that hasn't happened in our house. But those are the kind of things you want to talk. What do you think about all the body piercings and tattoos and dreadlocks? What do you think about the fact that this person doesn't have a job? You know, these real life things, does that bother you? And what kind of consequences? You, you just talk them out. Or, yes, that person, I could, that's a, they're, they're raised in a good Christian home. They are a true believer. I can see that that's a possibility. Might be worth getting to know that person a little better. Or it might be somebody where, and you're coaching them and you're, and you're talking this through. Well, that person is certainly a, a, comes from a good Christian family and they're a strong believer. But I don't think you all would get together. I don't think you would be very good for each other because they, they're all strong and have passions about this. And you're, this is your personality and they might be controlling or they might be country in your city. I mean, there might be things there that, that would work. And so you'd have to wrestle with that kind of... But the idea is that the parents all along are coaching and teaching what marriage is so that when the time comes, Lord willing, the children will have already known and worked through. They've already said no to prospective things, whether they were hot or not. And they want what God wants for them. And so when your daughters get old enough and the boys start getting interested... That's when the dads have got to be involved. Now, why do the dads have to be involved? Because dads know about teenage boys. And how can dads know about teenage boys? Because dads used to be teenage boys. And dads aren't going to fall for the kind of things that daughter will and possibly even mother, who have a tendency to be a little more romantically inclined. Dad knows that our little boys can be manipulative and, they, and tell girls things they want to hear and lie. So, you know, flowers don't cut it for dad. Dad wants to know what's behind those flowers. What's the motive? What exactly are you looking for in this relationship? And if the silver necklace or the box of chocolates come to the house and there's just the daughters aren't even walking on the ground, they're walking on air, and there's little pink hearts flying all over the place. That doesn't cut it for death. He doesn't, he doesn't get manipulated that way. He doesn't fall for things like that. He, he knows because he's been there, and he's the leader and the protector and the provider of the home. And if, if he smells a fish, he needs to step in and say something. God has placed dads, that's one of the roles that they play, to shepherd and to guard the hearts of their daughters, so that they don't fall for the wrong guy, even if the flowers come. The flowers can be good things, chocolate and all that other jewelry. We'll keep it. We'll keep it. <clears throat> but there's a lot needs to be a lot more. And it can't be, but Dad, they believe in God. What kind of life are they living? Where's the love for God? Show me. I, only speaking for myself here, 
But, you know, through the years I've seen a lot of young girls' hearts broken. And broken badly, bruised. Because of just unwise choices and bad relationships. And it affected me to the point where all growing up, I told my girls, if you ever get in a relationship that is not good for you, I don't care how much you love that person. I don't care how much you think your life cannot go on without that person. And I don't care how much you hate me for doing it. But I'm going to do everything in my power to break it up. Because I would rather for you to hate me, I'll take it, than to watch. I got a cold, I'm a little weak, so I'm a little teary-eyed as the drainage. But to watch your heart be broken and beaten and bruised, just not going to do it. That's just me. But I'm firm on that. Well, I don't know where my other daughter is, but she's here. Anyway, she escaped. I can speak for Lisa and I, and unfortunately Lisa's home with my cold. She has. All we always, always told our children in training them about marriage, most important thing, is that the person you're interested in loves God. They're believers They love God. It just makes all the difference in a relationship because they're they're operating under the authority of a supernatural person that's going to guide them into decisions. And they're and they're going they are much more likely and prone to love you rightly and to live rightly and to be the right kind of spouse because they're allowing themselves to be fed the right information and yielding to the right power. So that's something that wasn't about the looks and being hot. It wasn't about the money and the, even the, the degrees and the education. We've always said the most important thing is that they should love God and have a heart for God. So, you know, I think as we think about what they did so many years ago, as they were trying to rebuild their lives, and yeah, they're surrounded by pagan cultures. There's a lot of temptation out there. It's something that we need to be doing today as the covenant people of God. And that as as parents and as grandparents, dialoguing with the children, our children of the faith, getting together, talking about this stuff, assuring your kids, kids, you know, dad, Jesus. And Dad's shotgun will help you figure all this stuff out. It'll all be okay. I would recommend that, you know, kids, if you're old enough, covenant with your parents. Just covenant with your parents and get with them. And once you make that decision, think about it. But then just just covenant that I'm not going to allow myself to be emotionally or romantically involved with somebody who is not scriptural this way. Help me to do that. I won't... I don't want to be involved. So marriage, if you think about it, I think what this passage is saying is it starts with the family. It doesn't start with that first date. It doesn't start with the love at first sight or the first gift or, or flowers. It really starts with the family. And what God is saying is that 
It's the spiritual level that's the most important in a covenant relationship. Spiritual level, not the surface things, not the physical things, because it's the spiritual connection that's the most important. And ideally, they're connected to God and therefore they can be one with one another based on their connection with God. And what God puts together, let no man separate. We just recently had our sweethearts banquet here at church. Um, a lot of laughter, a lot of good times, a lot of good food. And I usually close the time out with a, a word of encouragement. And the scripture that the Lord brought to my mind for that was, was back in Genesis. What God puts together, let no man separate. And what I uh, wanted us to be mindful of, two things in that verse. First of all, God really does put people together. And one of the things that can transform our marriage is realizing that the person that we're married to is a gift from God. And it changes the way that we look at one another. It helps us not to take each other for granted. You are a gift from God. God brought you to me. And God knows what he's doing. But then the second challenge was challenge was where it says, let no man separate. You know, are there any things in our relationships that are causing any kind of separation? Are there issues that just need to be Continue to try to work them out and resolve them. Some things can be resolved in one good sit, sit down, not other things. But you keep trying. Are our lifestyle, lifestyles conducive to harmony and unity and agreement? Or are there changes that need to be made in our relationship so that we can come together and not be separated? You can still live in the same house and not be in union. Not be in agreement. So those are the challenges. So we are God's people. I'm not going to do, in case you're worried about it, I'm not going to move on to second, the second point. Uh, I've exhausted my time on the first. We'll look at this next time. But we, the, the idea is this. We are God's covenant people today. Marriage is very important to God's heart. And it starts with God. And it's, it's about love of God as much as it is about love for one another. And so in our homes, this is what needs to be taught and emphasized and in our church, taught and emphasized as a people that walk in obedience to God. And that will require countercultural living. But that's where you receive the blessings of the covenant life that God has offered to us so generously. May God bless the preaching of his word.